Uh, it has been good this morning uh, to, uh, to pray with you. Uh, it has been good to, uh, to sing with you, to worship our living God together with you this morning. And uh, at this, this point, we're going to be uh, looking into God's words and mentioned a couple times already uh, from Mark chapter 9. And we've, there's been a series that uh, we've been going through now for the last uh, number of, of weeks, of about 10 weeks or so. Um, and uh, one of the things is uh, last week, actually, as uh, David uh, Mulholland preached last week, uh, he made mention of, uh, as we were going through in Mark chapter, at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, uh, even up through the transfiguration of Christ, which uh, was looked at last week, he made the, the remark that this was a, a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and, and, and what he's uh, describing was how previously there was this, you may have picked up on it week after week, this almost kind of hiddenness uh, that Jesus was, you know, he would perform a miracle and then he would say to the one that he was doing the miracle uh, on that, you know, don't tell anybody uh, about who I am. Don't tell anyone about, about what you have seen, about what you have witnessed. And then now, at the transfiguration and at the confession of Peter, that now we're going to see this more exposure, this clarity of who Jesus is, as Peter himself even professed uh, that he is the Christ. Uh, and so this morning, we're, we're coming on the other side of that turning point where Jesus is making it all the more obvious and apparent, even though uh, we, uh, like the crowds, like the disciples, are so oftentimes uh, very dull uh, to understanding these things. Uh, Christ is making it all the more clear. So we're on the other side of that this morning. As we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14, we'll be going through uh, the end of the chapter uh, but for uh, our reading this morning, uh, we will just simply be going through verse 14 through verse 32. Um, so I would invite you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, as it is just an act of our uh, submission to the authority of the Word of God as we stand and hear what the Lord says to us. Uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Says, when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, 
He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, um, seeing the power of Jesus Christ Almighty, Lord, it beckons to us a response. God, knowing who he is, seeing who he is, that we would fall down and worship him. Lord, I pray that as we look into these marvelous things, I pray that you would grant us clarity. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, so that we might come away changed on account of seeing you. Lord, we pray you would do this work in our hearts. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the people of Israel, they themselves had seen some incredible miracles. Going back even to the, uh, the Old Testament and thinking back through the book of Exodus. People of Israel, they saw the, the ten plagues. The, the Red Sea turned to blood, the, all the, the gross creatures that were around them, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, all those things that were plaguing them. Uh, the sky turning completely dark, again culminating in the angel of death passing over them, but executing the firstborns in Egypt. They saw the miraculous provision of God by Pharaoh letting them go and being able to take the wealth and riches of Egypt with them. They saw God deliver them from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. They saw God provide for them manna from heaven, and they, uh, then they camped there at Sinai. And here is this miracle-witnessing nation. They're camped at Sinai. Where their leader, Moses, he is with Yahweh. Lightning is crackling from the peak of the mountain. Thunder is roaring and a cloud is covering whatever is taking place up there for these 40 days. Moses is with God, receiving the law of God and meeting with him face to face where he is exposed to the holiness, to the awesomeness of the Almighty Creator. Moses had this proverbial and literal mountaintop experience with God. And he descends the mountain and he finds what? But the people of God 
had fashioned a golden calf and are worshiping it. I cannot imagine the sheer disbelief and frustration of Moses at the hardness of heart and the ignorance by Israel. Now, fast forward. Jesus had all, has already had quite the experience with his disciples on earth. He takes these men from fishing boats and from tax collecting tables and he calls them to drop their ledgers, drop their fishing nets, and to follow after him. And they do. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Andrew, Thomas, and on. They get this front row seat to watch Jesus take the lame, take the blind, and to restore their health. They saw Jesus rebuke a storm and show his authority over the wind and the waves. They have seen him take a mere five loaves and two fish, and then later the seven loaves and a few fish, and to then feed a large gathering of people. They have heard wisdom unlike anything ever uttered before, hearing Pharisees and scribes trying to trap Jesus, then exposing the wickedness of their hearts and their intentions of his accusers. I don't know what the disciples thought they were signing up for when they, in essence, burned those nets and they burned those ledgers behind them, but I doubt it was this. Then Peter, James, and John, they are invited to go up with Jesus to this high mountain by themselves. And there they see something that is too glorious, too majestic, honestly, for a full description. They see this Jesus whom they ate with, whom they traveled with, now transfigured into a state of glory which radiates this glowing white. They see the Christ for who he really is, the Son of God. They see him with Moses and Elijah, and it leaves them in this stupor, causing them to say some really weird things. Because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They are dumbfounded. Never, never before had the chasm between God and man, between the Son of Man and the dust-formed disciples, been so obvious to these disciples. A voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. They come down from the mountain. And there is no golden calf, but there is ignorance. There is arguing. There is pride, as we'll see, in great amount. And Jesus does not throw down tablets of stone at the people. But what we'll notice is he takes his disciples and he instructs them. He leads them. He teaches them what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And as Israel proved, it is not easy, and the disciples perhaps found it no more easy. But what Jesus shows them and what he shows us this morning is that because the call to follow after Christ is indeed so difficult, we absolutely must lay a hold of a strength 
that is outside of us. Jesus shows us what true discipleship looks like. And that's what we're going to notice here in in each of these these sections as Jesus is further and further clarifying what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he points us to is that to be a disciple of Christ, he needs to be dependent, to be a dependent disciple. We notice here with this Jesus healing this boy with an unclean spirit. I know many of you are probably waiting for me to share some stories. Those of you that know I have epilepsy and have had a few seizures, I'm not going to share some of those stories. Uh, waiting for that illustration. Um, but there is nothing though like the feeling you have, uh, not, there's nothing like the feeling you have, the adequate skill and the power to do a job, and then only to find out how greatly mistaken you are. I have had many of those encounters, usually having to do with some kind of work project, like trying to install an exterior door that I thought was going to be a pretty easy job, and then lo and behold, it wasn't, but the door is already off, and now there's an opening in our home. (laughs) Having to then call a friend saying, sorry, I need you to come over, I'm struggling here, I can't figure this out, and thankfully, he came over. The disciples are confronted with this man and his son with an unclean spirit. This unclean spirit manifests itself through these epileptic seizures, which cause the boy to be cast into fires, to be cast into water, seeking to end his life. That is the goal and the enemy. The goal of the enemy is to seek and to kill and to destroy, not only physically, but ultimately spiritually. They say, the disciples, they say, we got this. We can take care of this. They soon realize that they are powerless against this enemy. Jesus, the one who has proven his authority over all things, physical and spiritual, rebukes the unclean spirit, causing it to lash out in defiance, and the spirit leaves the boy. The issue and the crux of the matter is the power, and it is the faith. The disciples were powerless to heal this boy. It was not a sin issue or anything wrong with the disciples, making them unable, if you will. The power they needed, that the boy and his father needed, was only found in Christ. Faith, though, is the means by which the power of Christ was exercised onto the boy. Here Jesus says it is prayer which is the vehicle there in verse 29. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he says. As one writer has described it, prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is the activity of faith. It is faith in action and directed toward God. This is made more clear by actually by Matthew's account of this passage. In Matthew 17, he recounts this same uh, thing which took place. In Matthew 17, starting in verse 19, it says this. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Where then was the disciples' faith? It was in their own abilities and in their own power. They did not turn heavenward, but instead they turned inward. They were like the the mystics and spiritualists we have in our day who cry out, find the God within yourself, your own divine nature. That is where your power to overcome your addiction is found, to overcome your, your negative energy, your toxic relationships, your medical ailments. That's where they will come from. The answer, though, according to Jesus was not to say some magic words of prayer. If you just you know, follow this recipe, it will turn out all right. Just say these words. And it certainly wasn't just to just try harder to get this demon out of them. But it was for them, for them to turn their eyes onto the one who is greater than any epileptic episode greater than any unclean spirit, greater than any marital conflict, greater than any troublesome relationship in the home, greater than any financial crisis. He is able. He is capable. He is greater than. And if He is willing, then there is nothing which can prevent that which is broken to be restored. So with the disciples watching... Remember, Jesus turns to the father and he says, the father of the boy, and says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. What Jesus commands of the father is what he earlier commanded of the the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 5 and the, the synagogue ruler. The sole bridge between frail humanity and the all sufficiency of God is faith. Genuine faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient amount of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I believe, help my unbelief. He rests it all on Christ. True faith takes no confidence in itself. Nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers, thankfully. It looks to the all-powerful one whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able. Being a disciple of Jesus means being dependent. It means prayer. It means faith. Looking outside oneself for power and might to fight the evil one, to combat sin, to push back the kingdom of darkness. This is the first thing that Jesus teaches them. But he goes on with lesson number two, that they are called to be teachable disciples. 
It says there, read the passage again, verse 30, that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It can be so easy to pick on the disciples. Again, think back to the transfiguration just a few moments ago. They were given one instruction which came from heaven itself saying, listen to him. How much more clear instruction do they need, we think? Immediately, Jesus teaches them, and they don't follow, and they don't seek clarification upon it further. They respond in fear. Granted, I have definitely done the very same thing. A teacher, a parent, or supervisor has given instruction, repeats the instruction, is obviously frustrated. You still don't understand, so you just pretend to understand and just hope for the best. Hope you guessed right. We've all been there. But how can Jesus' handpicked followers not get it? The disciples were so close to Jesus, traveling with him now nearly three years. So the answer isn't, okay, we need to be, you know, in proximation to Jesus, closeness to Jesus physically. And but I think, well, obviously, that's true, but, but how often actually we really believe that we just need to be close to him physically. We say, well, I have a Bible on my nightstand, and so that's going to make me a better disciple of Christ if it's near me. Or even maybe the, I have seven versions of my Bible. I have a great number of them. And so that's, that makes me more holy, a greater disciple of Christ. The answer isn't a full attendance sheet at church with lots of gold stars. The disciples didn't get the necessity of the cross. She said in the last chapter, in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, you can just glance over there, says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So this was not their first lesson in this. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter and the rest of the disciples had a theology of following Jesus, which meant preservation. It meant Jesus was going to rule, and if Jesus is going to rule, and if I'm his disciple, it means I will too. Jesus was going to go from carpenter to king, so Peter's lot certainly would improve as well. Christ is saying his path, his road, is one of suffering and of death. That meant and that Peter's death and the rest, that, that Peter's path and the rest of the disciples' paths would be suffering and death as well. To be a disciple means to follow Jesus. Simply put, that's what a disciple is. It means to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus means death. Yes, Jesus' death as, his death as payment for your sins, 
Jesus Christ died so that you might be given the forgiveness of sins. He paid the penalty for your sins, which you rightly deserve. Yes, to follow Jesus means believing in his death, but it means your death as well. It is dying to your lusts. It is dying to your will. It is dying to your affections. It is dying to your aspirations. It is dying to this world daily. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we've quoted him before, he said this, he said that the, the call to follow Christ, that it sets the Christian in the middle of the daily arena against sin and the devil. It puts us right in the middle of this battleground. Every day the Christian encounters a new temptation, and every day he must suffer anew for Jesus' sake. The wounds and scars he receives in the fray are living tokens of this participation in the cross of his Lord. He's saying this, that we are called to die daily. We suffer daily, even as we are fighting against the flesh, as we are fighting against Satan, as we are fighting against this world. And that suffering which we endure to follow after Christ in spite of maybe everything even we are seeing, that suffering is a participation even in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And this is a heavy burden. It is a heavy weight that to follow Christ means to die. If we would take this upon ourselves fully in our own strength, it absolutely destroys us and breaks us. And there might be someone in here this morning that is trying to bear the weight of dying to self and suffering all on their own. And if that is the case, then we are weary and tired and exhausted. Christ promises to renew our strength for the fight. He tells us to come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The disciples they needed clarity. They needed to hear the teaching of the Lord. They also needed to hear the importance of humility as a disciple of Christ. To be a follower of Christ is to be humble. Look there in verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Continue on, verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This whole scenario is kind of like jarring a little bit. In just one moment before, Christ is talking about his own need to be delivered over by the hands of men, the men whom he created, his own countrymen as Israelites as well, he would then be killed by them. And all of this for the sake of the disciples, being handed over even for them, and Christ even being handed over for his enemies, even you and I. Then the disciples both argue about which one of them is the greatest, obviously unaware that it would eventually be Muhammad Ali, and then, and then trying to exclude others whom Jesus had included as those who follow him. It's like they weren't paying attention. <laughs> I can't tell you when I'm reading this, you just think of you know, your own, uh, as, as a parent, as a dad, and you're seeing this, were you paying attention? And then it's, oh wait, this is me. I'm not paying attention. One writer, he said, they, the disciples, they have imbibed the wine of rank, placement, and self-importance, and they import it into their fellowship with Jesus. In fact, in Mark, there are three times when Jesus predicts his death and suffering. This is the second time with the previous one we read earlier with Peter's private rebuke. And the third one is going to be in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. And that one is followed by the request of James and John to sit with Christ in glory. Each time, Jesus speaks of his rejection, followed by the disciples' ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus counts the cost of his path, and the disciples count the assets in theirs. There is perhaps no greater point of divergence between the path of Jesus and the path of this world than on the question of greatness. The world says greatness is found in success. Success at school, success in sports, success in art, success in going to a great college, success in thriving in college, success in finding a great career, success in finding a great spouse, success in having kids, success in having a great house, a great car, success in having great family vacations, success in your kids doing well in school, success in your kids doing well in sports, success in your kids going to a great college, and on and on and on the cycle goes. And we buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. Christ says greatness is found in serving others. And not just serving others, but serving one who is like a child, one who is low on society's scale, one who could receive your service but could offer you nothing in return. 
How often do we, and I am guilty of this, I will serve someone, but in the back of my mind, I love it when I get some kind of repayment for it as well. You know, it's not, it's not, a, not a monetary thing, but, but, but anything that can be thrown back my way. To serve one who is like a child is you are serving someone with no expectation whatsoever of anything in return. Serving others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Christ. We'll actually say more about that in weeks to come. The same pride which seeks to place itself above all others likewise seeks to exclude others and has an elitist attitude. The humble disciple does not stop the work of God just for the sake of some secondary detail. Notice John was concerned that this miracle worker was not following Jesus. That's not what his concern was, did you notice? But that the miracle worker was not following us, he said. Doesn't that really get to the heart of it all? Those that we disagree with, those that we seek to silence, whether it is theologically, politically, or even socially, when we scrutinize our hearts, are we silencing them because of their offense to the Lord or to us? Jesus is exposing John's pride on the issue and again repeats the necessity for the disciple of Christ to be a disciple of humility. Have a vision beyond your own niche world. The kingdom of Christ is bigger than your preferences and your secondary issues. It is more powerful than personality types and political affiliations. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Lastly, disciples of Christ are called to be holy disciples. Look there in our text, verse 42. That whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I remember a story of one of my buddies who, when he was in seminary, uh, at a, a different seminary that I had gone to, one of his professors, uh, who was an older gentleman and had, I think, also reached a point in life where he just calls him as he sees him. He didn't have anything to try to elevate to or anything of that sort. And he, he was a holy man. And he had some Jehovah's Witnesses knock on his door one day. And if you've ever had Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, they oftentimes, you know, they oftentimes come in pairs. There's usually two of them. And this particular couplet was a uh, 
an adult, and it was a young person, someone who was, uh, he's like around like middle school age. So the two of them come, who's, he's kind of someone in training then of sorts, the younger person, and they're having a conversation, and the seminary professor is trying to show the, uh, the faults of his line of thinking and how he is believing in a separate God than the God of Scripture. And it, eventually it, it, it goes nowhere. They have to part their ways. And the seminary professor, he, he talks to the adult and he says, would you mind if I just, if, could I say something direct to this, this young person here? And he says, sure, you can do that. And he looks at him in the eye and he says, I want to tell you, young man, that it would be better that, that this person that you're with, that he would be, have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea and him causing you to stumble and leading you astray. Which they immediately left. <laughs> Walked out right then. I, I, I hope there was some great salvation that came about for that young man. And as this, this professor, he was just trying to be honest with this person said, I don't have any, anything to hide here. Uh, and that this is what the word of the Lord has to say. And Jesus here in this whole account, he's so graphic, isn't he? I mean, that should really give us pause. You know, if, if I am speaking to, to my daughters, and I, maybe I, I am warning uh, one of them of, of playing with something that they ought not to play with, that they are playing around a stove, and I say, look, you are around this stove. I'm telling you, if you touch this, it will scald your hand. It will burn your flesh. Oh, it, will, it will smell terrible, but it's going to have these blisters, and they're going to be oozing, and it will, have, you will, it will hurt so badly. As I'm, I'm, I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but, as, but as I would be sharing that with one of my daughters, I am being graphic for the sake of, of seriousness. I would say, hey, Stay away from the stove. That doesn't convey the same measure of seriousness as ooze coming out of your hand. Likewise, using the loss of our eyes, our hands, and our feet in this way, those things which are most indispensable to us physically, attest to the uncompromising offense of the gospel and that nothing should stand in the way of eternal life. I want you to jump down to those verses 49 and 50, because I believe this is where, as, as strange as those verses are, they're, they're getting the final point that, that, that he's really trying to make. When he says that salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Think, what is salt and fire? What, what is this that, that he is saying? Both salt and fire were necessary ingredients for a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it says that every single sacrifice which was on the altar that salt was necessary for would be thrown upon the sacrifice. And fire, obviously, would be used, especially as you think of uh, the, the fires which would totally uh, consume the burnt offering. Likewise, Jesus, what he is getting at in this entire section is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That it lays a total claim on one's life as a sacrifice. It must be totally consuming. It must be. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our lives are to be seen as fully and holy the Lord's. Every aspect, every sphere, every inch, every thought, every arena. As I'm sure you may have heard before, always the problem with a living sacrifice is it can get off the altar. And that is a battle that we fight every day. where We are continually called to follow Christ today. Die today. Die today. Each day we are given that call. I'll say this lastly. One of the goals of Grace Point Church is toward discipleship. That, that we would all know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be his follower. Our goal is not to be a place for the next greatest event True discipleship is not even having better programs, even having better preaching or better community. All of those and more can be hugely important tools, but the source of discipleship is Christ. Christ himself. Discipleship is about redirecting our loves to God himself. God, he initiates, he is the source and the goal of discipleship. And in so doing, he makes us dependent, teachable, humble, and holy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you would use your word. God, your word which Christ spoke. God, to follow after Christ. Lord, is there anything greater, is there any greater calling in this world, in this life, than Jesus to say, follow me. Christ, it is a tall order. Salvation is free. It is a free gift from you. Lord, as your children, as your disciples, you then call us to die daily. Lord, give us the strength. We need it from outside ourselves for we are weak and frail. We are dull. We are ignorant day after day. Forgive us. Lord, I pray you would give us the strength that we so desperately need. In Christ's name, amen.